Most of you listening to me right now are probably infidels. According to Islam, if you don't embrace Islam, then you're in fact an infidel. Today, we'll discuss the book, The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucharin. I'm Kevin Harris, and we feature guests like Dr. Robert Spencer, who are experts in various areas as we address the spiritual and cultural issues of our day. Pat had a great show with Dr. Spencer last week, and if anyone missed that, they can get it at evidenceandanswers.org. Go to evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find past shows that you can download, all kinds of resources there at evidenceandanswers.org. But we have Dr. Spencer back, and Pat, do the honors. Yes, you know, with all that is going on with Islam throughout the world, one of the fastest-growing religions, and we can see uh, its impact going on not only in the West but throughout the world. It's important that we understand the Quran and what the Quran teaches. And this is a very handy book that we got here, written by Dr. Spencer, The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran, because the Quran can be a very difficult, well, it is a very difficult book to understand. And you can't read it alone. You, you need a guide to help you, and this is a very, very good one. Dr. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch. It's a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. And he is the author of several outstanding books on Islam, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Truth About Muhammad and the Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades. He has been an advisor for the United States Central Command, the Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the U.S. intelligence community. So a man very familiar with Islam and the teachings of Islam, Dr. Robert Spencer. So Dr. Spencer, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Happy to be back. You know, last week we talked about the Quran and how it was put together. And Muslims claim that this is indeed a divinely inspired book. And they have several lines of proof in which they try to prove that the Quran is really a divinely inspired book. And one of them is that the, the beauty of the Quran, that even though Muhammad was illiterate, what we have here is one of the most beautiful books ever written. Is this indeed uh, one of the most beautiful books ever written, Dr. Spencer? Well, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, in, certainly in terms of the content, it's one of the ugliest books ever written. Uh, in terms of the sound of it, and that is one of the things that, the, uh, that Muslim Islamic apologists mean when they are saying how beautiful it is, in terms of its sound in Arabic, there is a compelling quality to it as it has a kind of incantatory rhythm and a lot of internal rhymes and so on. Arabic is a very rhyming language, and uh, the Quran is is very poetic. There's no doubt about it. And uh, it does, uh, I, when I hear it, I can hear the things that I think Muslims consider to be compelling. But does this mean that it's a book from God? It just means that it's a, it's a rather beguiling poem in some parts. But I wouldn't say that uh, Geoffrey Chaucer or William Shakespeare is inspired by God because he can write beguiling poems. The problem here is really kind of the, 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 evident, the level of evidence or the evidence that's being demanded. The Quran several times says, if you don't think that this is a book from God, then produce a surah like it or a chapter like it. And the idea is, is that it's unique in its poetic uh, power, such that nobody can write anything like it. Well, this is uh, obviously something on the face of it that's false. Uh, it's uh, a book that can be imitated pretty much like any other book can be imitated. Stylistically, it can be and has been imitated many times. There's even a website that takes up the Quranic challenge and is called suralikeit.com and has a number of uh, uh, Arabic uh, translated into English, 
Quran chapters, not Quran chapters, but pseudo-Quran chapters, that uh, are attempting to show that they can produce a surah like it and thereby show that the Quran is not from God. Uh, but here again, this kind of test and even this kind of evidence, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And there is really no, uh, no other material that anybody could ever produce that any pious or devout Muslim would admit is actually like the Quran. And so it's kind of a hollow, unprovable tests standard in the first place. That's a good point that you make, uh, Dr. Spencer, in that eloquence is not necessarily a gauge or a test for truth. Something can be very eloquent, yet false. And uh, you might come up with what you think is a surah like that of the Quran, and then uh, a Muslim will look at it and say, nope, not as good. So, you know, uh, you can't move with that. The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran is the book we're discussing with its author, Dr. Robert Spencer. Pat? You know, Dr. Spencer, another proof of inspiration that the Muslims cite is that the Quran has been accurately preserved. Is that proof of inspiration? Well, no, it's really just sort of proof that uh, variant readings in the Islamic tradition are not welcomed. It's not like in the biblical tradition where ancient manuscripts are painstakingly preserved and variant readings are studied by scholars and uh, by theologians as what they, uh, as for their provenance and what they may disclose about divine revelation. It's a very different atmosphere in the Islamic world. If there is a Quran that differs from the canonical text, it's likely to be burned and certainly not to be consulted or to be held up as anything that Muslims ought to look at. Well, here's another one, that there is a mathematical structure to the Quran. And if you look at it in Arabic, there's a mathematical structure there, according to the number 7 or 14, or uh, I've heard several. Is that proof of inspiration? Yeah, there, are a lot of those, uh, there are a lot of those kinds of theories. Here again, you're entering into the realm of self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you start uh, counting letters and relating the count to something or other, you are entering into a realm in which you can really do anything you want because you can make the count be whatever you want it to be. There's no key. There's no guide that says if you have a book that has uh, a certain feature recurring every seventh page or every seventh letter or you know any, whatever it is then that book is from god there's uh, where does it say that there's no idea anywhere that uh, any kind of numerological unity is uh, any evidence of anything but there are an awful lot of very jimmied uh, things very jimmied presentations from islamic apologists along these lines where they claim that uh, the word day appears for example in the quran 365 times and that's supposed to prove something um, as far as I'm concerned, it only proves that the solar year is superior to the lunar year because the lunar year that the Muslims actually follow only has 360 days. And so if day appears on the Quran 365 times, and that's supposed to prove something, then they ought to switch to the solar year. But you see, this kind of thing really you enter into absurdities of this kind, and ultimately it's just an, uh, uh, an exercise in uh, finding evidence after the fact for something someone wants to be true. You know, uh, the Bible, there are prophecies in the Bible, over 100 made of Christ before he set foot upon the earth. And another proof of inspiration of the Quran, the Muslims say, well, there are prophecies in the Quran as well. For example, chapter 30 of the Quran about Muhammad predicting Rome defeating Persia. 
Are there prophecies yeah, in the Quran? You know that uh, that there's it's not clear at all in that prediction uh, it, whether it came before or after the event. But it wasn't hard for him to predict that uh, they would be defeated when you're talking about uh, armies that were already on the ropes and armies that had already fought exhausting battles. You know, the Byzantines had been fighting for years against the Persians, and uh, the empire was essentially exhausted militarily. And so for Muhammad to come along and say uh, that the Byzantines will soon be defeated was uh, in terms of the power of the prophecy, even if he did say it before it happened, uh, was about like saying Obama is not likely to pick up any seats in Congress in the 2010 midterm election. So there are no prophecies on caliber with with, uh, the the biblical Old Testament? No, certainly not, no. There are some in Islamic tradition that come after the Quran and are attempts to shore up Muhammad's claim to be a prophet. But uh, nothing in the Quran itself, and most of those traditions that uh, show Muhammad being prophesied and the prophecies coming true, or Muhammad himself making prophecies, they are all uh, justifications after the fact. Well, here's the final proof that I often hear that uh, the Quran is scientifically accurate. It showed uh, some things that scientists are discovering now that are true, like, for example, the earth is round. Things. Is there scientific accuracy in the Quran? Uh, well, there may be some passages that people can read that way, but uh, here again, it's very, very forced in terms of how these things are read. For example, there is a uh, prophecy of the end times in the Quran, which says the moon will be split asunder, which is pretty standard kind of biblical language, and the much of the Quran is influenced by uh, what Muhammad was hearing from the local Jews and Christians reciting passages from the scriptures. And uh, there has, there's an Islamic apologist, Harun Yahya, who actually claims that that verse refers to the moon landing, because the astronauts in 1969... Ga- uh, they uh, leaned down and gathered some soil from the moon to take back to the earth to study. And so he, he's actually claiming that that is a splitting of the moon and that, uh, therefore, this was a prophecy of a great scientific... Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that this was a, a prophecy that, uh, that foreshadowed this, this, this moon landing. And there are other things in the Quran of the same kind. You know, the Quran is a, is a pretty standard, reflects a pretty standard pre-scientific worldview. Uh, it even has a passage in chapter 18 in which... Uh, the sun, it is said, is uh, the sun sets in a muddy pool, and uh, Dulcarnain, who was uh, a, a mysterious figure in chapter 18 and travels to the ends of the earth, he sees the sun setting in the muddy pool where it stays at night. And so if that's uh, the Quran coinciding with modern science, I'm going to go out and look for that muddy pool uh, tomorrow at dusk. Wow. You know, I can see how Muslim apologists might get around that by saying that it's metaphorical or in the distance it looks like it's setting, you know, in a muddy pool or something like that. What I don't see how they can get around is the the verse that says that male semen comes from the chest. Yes, that's right. Chapter 86. passages in the Quran which say that uh, man was formed from uh, various things, from soil, from a clot of blood, from... uh, 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 the liquid that emanates from the uh, area around the backbone. 
And so, yeah, the the idea is that uh, the the male fluid somehow comes from some area of the body that, uh, of course, it's preposterous that it really comes from. But here again, these things are justified, and they are very elaborate and complex justifications by Islamic apologists that you can find that uh, will claim that even in the face of the obvious evidence that this is a pre-scientific book that is reflecting a pre-scientific worldview, that uh, actually the Quran is saying something that coincides with the latest scientific discoveries. Dr. Spencer, what are the satanic verses, and why are they so controversial? The satanic verses, most people know it nowadays as the uh, Salman Rushdie novel that got him in trouble such that he uh, uh, was given this death sentence by the Iranian regime, which is renewed every year. Uh, but uh, actually, it refers to a real incident in Muhammad's life. According to Islamic tradition, there was a point at which Muhammad was so grieved by his being rejected by his people, the pagan Arabs, the Quraysh tribe of Mecca, that uh, he hit upon a way to try to reconcile them. And the reconciliation was in the form of acknowledging or getting a divine revelation that uh, the three principal goddesses that the Quraysh worshipped, Allah, Al-Uzza, and Manat, were actually the daughters of Allah and were worthy of veneration. And so he got a, uh, a revelation. These things tended to come to him at various convenient times, saying that uh, he, it goes like this, Have you considered Alat al-Uzza and Manat? They are the exalted cranes, worthy of veneration. Cranes like high-flying birds who are flying high around the throne of God, you see. And so the... Uh, Quraysh were delighted, and they prostrated themselves in prayer to Allah with the Muslims. And it looked as if there was a final reconciliation that actually had been achieved. But in reality, then, Muhammad realized upon reflection that he had compromised the entirety of his earlier message, and that he had been preaching this uh, absolute and strict and uncompromising monotheism, and now he had thrown the whole thing over and had become a, a, essentially a polytheist. And so he uh, went back on what he said, and he said instead that Satan had inspired those verses, and that they were not really from Allah at all, and thus should be canceled. And so now in chapter 53 of the Quran, it says, starts out the same way. The, have you considered Allah, Al-Uzza, and Manah? But then it goes on to say, instead of, they are the exalted cranes worthy of veneration, it goes on to say, uh, they uh, so Allah has daughters and you have sons. That's not fair because, of course, everybody knows that daughters are superior. I mean, that sons are superior to daughters in this view. And so uh, you have here the satanic verses, the passages in which Muhammad said that the daughters of Allah were worthy of veneration. Those are considered in Islamic tradition. Those are called the satanic verses. And so this is a real incident, and it really kind of destroys Muhammad's claim to be a prophet altogether, because if he were a prophet, then uh, he would have known that Satan were talking to him and not pass it off as the words of God. And he, uh, and now that he has admitted that Satan spoke to him at one time, then obviously he's opened the door for the possibility that Satan might have been speaking to him at many other occasions as well. And so uh, it just casts doubts upon the whole thing, which is why 
deny uh, Muslims vehemently deny the historicity of the Satanic Verses incident, but unfortunately for them, it is found in some of the earliest biographical material about Muhammad. And if you push this, good way to get killed, apparently, uh, Salman Rushdie. Yeah, certainly. Salman Rushdie's novel is loosely based on these traditions, and it got him this death fatwa, which still is in effect. Well, what does the Quran teach about the treatment of non-believers? Well, it teaches that uh, the people of the book, as the Quran refers to primarily to Jews and Christians, uh, ought to be uh, either converted to Islam or subjugated under the rule of Islamic law. And if they resist both of those options, then they ought to be warred against. And so conversion, subjugation, or, or war are the three possibilities, the three choices that the Quran in chapter 9, verse 29, offers to non-Muslims, particularly to the people of the book, to Jews and Christians to pagans, or the Hindus, Buddhists, and so on and so on, uh, they're, they're, they don't have the subjugation choice, they just have conversion or death, according to traditional Islamic law. Although, in Islamic law, as it unfolded historically, there were uh, the uh, practical necessities that developed because there were so many Hindus and they couldn't all be killed or all converted. And so, uh, the Islamic scholars gave them a kind of honorary people-of-the-book status and allowed them to be extended this subjugated status that, strictly speaking, should only be extended to Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians. And so uh, conversion, subjugation, or death are essentially the three choices that the Quran offers to most, if not all, non-Muslims. Yeah, and you know, there may be people out there saying, no, you're just exaggerating, that's not true. Well, I encourage them to read the Quran, you know, chapter 9, chapter 47, and other chapters of the Quran uh, that talk about this, correct? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. These uh, these chapters are the ones that are considered to have take precedence over the others, and so these are the ones that uh, a modern Muslim will consider to be his marching orders vis-a-vis non-Muslims today. Now, let's also talk. What does the Quran uh, teach regarding the treatment of women? You know, a lot that we see here in the West, we say, well. Islam teaches equal rights, the Quran teaches equal rights of women. You know, that's a myth that uh, women are second-class citizens in Islam or the Quran. What does the Quran teach about women? Well, the Quran does teach that women are second-class citizens. The Quran does teach that women are essentially the possessions of men, and uh, that's how uh, the Quran kind of assumes that they they are. The Quran says that uh, disobedient women should be beaten, that's chapter 4, verse 34. It says men are superior to women, and that's why uh, God has given men charge over them. Uh, good women are obedient. The testimony of a woman in court is worth half that of a man. That's chapter 2, verse 282. And so there are many, many other uh, indications in the Quran that uh, women certainly are not equal to men. But it's kind of funny uh, that Islamic spokesmen in the West routinely take advantage of the ignorance of non-Muslim Westerners about the Quran and Islam. And so they uh, they routinely say that the Quran has uh, essentially taught equality of rights for women, and they're counting on people to know that uh, these things are not to know that these things are false because they don't know what's in the Quran. So what we see in Iran or Pakistan or Afghanistan on uh, the treatment of women is more accurate to the Quran than what we may be seeing in the West. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, sure. In, look, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in the Sudan, in Afghanistan, those regimes very consciously 
claim to be uh, embodying Islamic and Quranic authenticity and to be uh, the repositories of uh, the authentic Islam. And so if that's the case, then uh, that's a very unattractive kind of society, a society that institutionalizes the discrimination against women and non-Muslims. And so the the idea that the these societies are somehow all getting Islam wrong and all getting Islam wrong in essentially the same ways and misinterpreting the texts in essentially the same ways, it strains credulity. Uh, these are regimes that are Islamic regimes, and that's what they are. They're Islamic regimes based on Islamic law, and it's manifest that that is exactly the law that they are indeed based upon. So why is it that uh, so many women in the West are attracted to marrying into the House of Islam? While so many women in the West are interested in marrying into the House of Islam is because they don't know anything about Islam. And they're not really marrying into the House of Islam. They're marrying a man who is somebody that they think they're in love with. I mean, that's really the, the short answer is that uh, this is an individual thing. You know, this is the reasons why women marry into uh, Muslim households is because they find very charming men who attract them. And uh, there are so many horror stories, unfortunately, of uh, those men then turning on the women that uh, they have charmed up to this point and becoming somebody quite different from the man they thought they were marrying. And then there get to be very, uh, there have been many instances of very ugly custody battles with uh, uh, the men taking the women and essentially moving to some place uh, uh, far away, someplace in the Islamic world, perhaps, and so on. And uh, the women never seeing their children again or being trapped there themselves. And so, you know, it's, it's very foolish for a woman to marry a, a non-Muslim woman to marry a Muslim, uh, especially if they don't know anything about Islam. They have no idea what they're getting into, and they are getting into something that uh, <clears throat> is going to be probably very different from what they think and very difficult in terms of being treated like a maid and a commodity and so on. Uh, and yet uh, these things, because they are not widely known in the West and because uh, most of the time they are obfuscated in the West by very slick Islamic apologists, uh, it is uh, very difficult to set up any kind of counter motion against it. Dr. Spencer, as we come to the end of this conversation on Evidence and Answers, I'm curious if you've been able to detect an Islamic attitude about President Obama, for good or for bad. I know that many in the Muslim world are attracted to him and think that he's more on their side. Have you been able to detect any attitude? Well, I think that uh, he certainly is on their side. He's certainly somebody who is very much hoping that if he shows a positive face, that if he shows a friendly face, to Muslims, then they will reciprocate. And he thinks that if he heaps praise and respect upon them, that therefore they will then uh, show that they will drop this jihad against the United States. He seems to assume that it's all our fault, essentially, and therefore if we adjust our thinking, then they will stop their belligerence. Uh, this indicates a tremendous uh, uh, ignorance on his part, or perhaps even a sympathy with their goals. We have been talking with 
Islamic scholar Dr. Robert Spencer, the director of Jihad Watch. Dr. Spencer, tell us about Jihad Watch. Jihad Watch is the news and commentary site on the web at jihadwatch.org, and it is updated many times daily with uh, material about the activities of Islamic jihadists in the United States and elsewhere that you will not find anywhere else. Well, you know, in our final moments, we are also on national radio, and I'm sure there are people out there who maybe this is the first time they're hearing uh, these things about Islam. Dr. Spencer, what do you have to say to them for those, maybe this is the first time they're hearing about it? What would you encourage them to be doing? Well, I would say uh, search for yourself, look for yourself. I know that uh, what you're hearing may sound hard to believe, that it's hard to believe that there could be a religion that teaches hatred, contempt, hatred and contempt for unbelievers and the necessity to wage war against them. Uh, it can be, uh, but it should not be dismissed out of hand. Uh, we do so at our own risk, because to do so is to ignore the uh, the reality of the situation. And so we have to face reality. We have to understand the situation that we're in before we can do anything about it. And that's why it's important to acknowledge these things as they are. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Spencer, the director of Jihad Watch, a Muslim scholar who's written a great book, The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran. If you want to understand the Quran, this is a book that you're going to have to read alongside it. So, Dr. Spencer, thanks for being with us these past two weeks. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers the claims of Christ in an honest and loving way. And we'd like to ask you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman.